is the minimum viable product dead? The MVP, does it still work? In today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast, I sit down with Bo Davis to answer this question. Bo is a serial, serial entrepreneur having built a company in the ed tech space, exited that, ultimately getting into the restaurant business with some of his buddies and um, realizing the challenges that exist for restaurant owners and building software in order to solve that with his new company called Margin Edge. He's also got a really interesting take on how to actually incorporate company values, mission into the core of how a company operates and how that actually saved the business. And they were able to grow during COVID after watching 80% of their customers' revenue drop, going from over a billion dollars in transaction volume a day to 200 million. So really, really fantastic episode of the Silicon Alley podcast. Bo shares some of the secrets and ways that you can actually build a really robust company and product and that you don't have to take the traditional path. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode of the Silicon Alley podcast featuring the Bo Davis. Are you interested in growing and scaling your business? Welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast, where you'll hear from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and top performers on what it truly takes to grow and scale a business. You'll walk away with actionable insights you can apply in your own business and life. Now to William Glass, the CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and your host of the Silicon Alley podcast. Bo, welcome to the Silicon Alley podcast. Super excited to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And excited to dive in. You've uh, started a number of businesses, so really excited to kind of hear your story, your journey, and understand what you're building at Margin Edge and their process there. Um, but I actually want to start um, overseas. So I noticed that you uh, did the Peace Corps, and I'm curious <laughs> if you could share a little bit about that experience and how uh, the Peace Corps might tie into entrepreneurship, or maybe it sure. doesn't. Yeah, no, actually, it, it ties in quite a bit in my particular story. I don't know that it always does, but... Um... But yeah, the Peace Corps was a super interesting experience, and I went into it right after exiting my first business. So I had been in higher ed tech, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, sold the company, and really, I was still young, I was like 26, 27, and I really wanted to do something totally different, but my entire experience had been in that space. And so I started talking to my wife about what we could do, well, fiance at the time, what we could do, and um, and just got the idea to like just just go out. We wanted to do something where we could give back and um, and sort of get out of our he own heads and do something different. And so we joined the Peace Corps and lived in Eastern Europe for two and a half years. Um, and yeah, was as we talk about Margin Edge, a large component of Margin Edge is that we've got 400 people overseas in the developing world on our uh, on our payroll. And so we actually um, the experience of living abroad in a country that was you know, early stage development and getting a sense of what life is like and, and how you can live on $200 a month. And it's actually, you know, you can have a decent life on $200 a month. It's hard for Americans to recognize, to realize that given our environment, but in uh, Macedonia where I was, Northern Macedonia, just above Greece, that's the average household income. Wow. That's really, yeah, really interesting. And uh, I guess shout out to Northern Macedonia real quick for all the soccer fans out there. They just knocked out Italy out of the World Cup. Um, Did they really? For the World Cup qualifying. Oh, gosh. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. So they're going the last... crazy. I promise you. It's not a big country. <laughs> that's a huge one. Yeah. 
So nice. anyway, that's a that's another edge. But so yeah, I was curious to start there because I I actually did a Fulbright over in Thailand and had a oh, nice. similar experience. So nice. Um, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, to your point, what you can what you can learn, or like how you can live to your point, live on a lot less than what you realize, and that opens things up. I'm interesting interested to hear how how you've been able to build uh, a company, right? You've said you've got, would you say 400 employees? I think yeah, 400, 450 400 people. employees. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that and what you- Yeah, and that's just overseas. So we have 150 stateside. Um, okay. But, um, um, well, yeah, let me, let me just kind of do it sequentially. It'll make a little more sense than if sure, I start yeah. making the end, <laughs> which will sound a little random. So um, after the Peace Corps, I went to graduate school in London and met up with a couple of friends and decided to start a business. It was a banker, a lawyer, and I had been a tech entrepreneur. And oddly, we uh, decided to go into the restaurant business. So after talking about a lot of different <laughs> things, we kept eating in the same kind of restaurant over and over again and, uh, and decided that we would bring that concept to the US. So we hired the executive chef of a place we really liked, opened our first place in 2006. And uh, over the next year, it turned out to not really be the right fit for the banker and the lawyer. And I stayed in the restaurant business for 10 years and opened restaurants all over the country um, in six states, a dozen restaurants. And then from that, learned a lot about the back office and how restaurants operate. And then in 2015, started Margin Edge, um, which is a software company that really helped restaurants run their back offices. You know, the, okay. the purchasing, invoicing, recipe management, food cost management, liquor management, you know, a lot of that accounting stuff. And... One of the things I learned was that that in the restaurant business, some of the things that have to happen in the back office can't be automated. Like technology is just not there. There's a lot of paper processes and manual processes that that just can't be can't be fixed, can't be automated. And so there's a human component that augments technology that allows that stuff to run more smoothly. And so I think my experience in the Peace Corps had me very uh, had me much more open minded to to doing something like that. And so. Yeah, we set up an office in um, India in Chandigarh and started doing a lot of the back office stuff there. And that's now grown. We have three offices in three parts of the world, uh, Latin America, Bangladesh, and uh, India. And um, and yeah, they provide the, the back office services where the software can't be automated. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense, Bo. And yeah, thanks for tying that together story-wise. So what stage are you guys at? You guys have raised a couple rounds of capital. Can you just give like a background of like roughly where the company is today? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So um, you know, we did friends and family for a fairly long time. One of our things when we started, and we joked around that my co-founder and I were were like three times the average uh, average entrepreneur's age at startup. We were, <laughs> were uh, this wasn't our first rodeo. Let's put it that way. And one of the things we really believed in was trying to build a product that was fairly complicated that solved some hard problems. And that product took time. So we spent about three three and a half years on product development before we went out and raised institutional money before we started spending any money on sales and marketing we really bootstrapped product for a long time and and so you know we did our series a i want to say we started 2015 i think we did our series a 2019 and then we did our b round in august of last year and we're doing our we're heading into our c round now so we raised uh, 18 in our last round and before that cumulatively between the series a and the founder you know the friends and family stuff we had raised about 15 so we're about 33 to date. As far as size, yeah, we have 150 people stateside, about 400 overseas. We work with 3,000 restaurants uh, all over the country, all the states. We have employees in 38 states, and um, we're really focused now on the sales and marketing. You know, we're still obviously product focused as a company, but we're scaling up our sales and marketing now. So we went from 10 to 25 salespeople last year. This year, we're trying to go from 25 to 75, um, and really, really get out there. 
Yeah, I know that's really helpful background and context, Bo, and a couple of things that I want to dive in, but I'm going to go back first. So you spent a lot, it sounds like a long time on the product development side. How, how did you run that, right? To make sure that you're building the right thing. Cause you were building this comp, you know, this, this complex thing, obviously you were in the restaurant business. So you probably experienced. Well, I was going to say, I, I spent 10 years, opened a dozen restaurants. My co-founder had been in the restaurant industry 25 years and had opened something like four, but we'd opened between, I think 40 or 50 restaurants between us owned, operated, opened, like built from scratch, hired everyone, ran the restaurants. Right. So we, we had a pretty deep knowledge of how a restaurant runs. And he had been at the Outback Steakhouse Group, OSI Group, which is a you know, thousand restaurant plus group. I had been obviously in more of an independent uh, restaurant group, but we had a pretty deep knowledge of restaurants. And again, a deep respect for how hard it is. And I think one of the things that, that really guided me um, as we started the company is that as a restaurateur who had been a tech founder, so I was pretty technical, I saw a lot of technology that, that people were trying to start companies too quickly and get out with a minimum viable product. But me as an end user was like, yeah, I'm not interested in your minimum, right? Like I have real problems and if you can solve real problems, great, <laughs> but I'm not really interested in your minimum. And so like I and Roy, my co-founder, we were not interested in building a minimum viable product. We were, we were interested in building a holistic product um, and willing to take the time and, and spend the money to get it there. So um, it's a different approach, I know, than the, the typical startup. Um, we did have a handful of clients. We had about 20 clients that were friends that were using the software. Uh, and I'm still in the restaurant business, so we had our restaurants using it. It was it was definitely not a get out, pivot, pivot. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And I, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's just interesting to hear different perspectives because, you know, you hear this one size fits all. This is the only way to do it. This is the... You know, but as as we know, the real world is not as uh, black and white as following a playbook that uh, that worked for a handful of successful companies and, you know, maybe write principles, but doesn't necessarily work. So, I'm, yeah, it's interesting to hear this different perspective because there's also, right, obviously different types of industries where you're not able to do that. If you're in hardware, it's a little t and you're doing something that's really complex. Sure. You can't really do a minimal viable product like I talking to uh, someone, I've talked to a founder who's in the rocket, you know, they're building like rocket propulsion systems for aerospace. Like it's hard to make a minimum viable product uh, yeah. for that. Right? Although, There's you know, Tesla did a really interesting minimum so. viable product in their first car, right? They, they took that British um, uh, uh, Roadster and slapped an electric, <laughs> electric engine and batteries in a car that they didn't even build. Uh, and that was the original Tesla. So yeah, that's I mean, true. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess, but like if you're, if you're, you know, talking to another founder, right? And they're kind of trying to figure out whether they should do the MVP or over, and they, they don't want to overbuild. Like, how would you approach that, right? You you had some specific knowledge within the industry. You also had the ability to be an early customer of your software, right? Like, what are some of the, the decisions or decision points um, a founder might need in order to make that decision of whether they should go the quick, get it out, MVP out, or maybe spend a little more time and build something a little more robust? I'm deeply biased towards the latter. I just am. <laughs> so I, you know, I love product. I love um, building something that that really does have an impact. And so I think, I think if you're going to build a software company, you need to have have money either from investors or wherever, but you need to have some capital to build something that is meaningful and you need to have people at the table who really understand whatever space you're going into. And so if it's not yourself, then you need to have advisors that you really listen to and you can really get in and work with and evolve what you're doing with them. And I just think I've, I've seen it too many times. There are, of course, there are successful stories of people who get in, you know, what is it? Um, 
uh, I'm forgetting the, the, the most famous one, but whatever, they're people who get in pivot and, and then end up doing really well. And that's great. But there are a lot of people who get in, raise some capital, rush into sales and marketing, generate a little bit of revenue, say, oh my God, look, we're growing 200% or 15% month over month or whatever off of a tiny base. And then just start trying to push that because now they've got capital chasing growth and there's no fucking product, pardon my French. And so, <laughs> right, the, the product is like the sliver of a real thing. And like, now you're in over your head, you're, over, you're in front of your skis. Like you're not gonna be able to get the money and the time to build the product properly, in my opinion. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just old. I like the idea of taking the time, get it right. But my first software company was the same thing. We spent a lot of time trying to get a product that really fit the marketplace nicely before we were selling it. Interesting. Yeah, no, it makes sense. It makes sense, Bo, because as soon as you as soon as you start bringing on revenue, right, and if that's what you're raising off of from an investor perspective, then the expectation is, well, this number needs to grow. Yeah. And most in I mean, depending on what stage you're at, right? Obviously, I shouldn't say most investors, but a lot of investors would prefer their money to go to growing the company from a sales and marketing perspective versus product development. So you end up in this category well, right. where you haven't built the right product or it like works kinda and you have a semblance of product market fit, but not really, and you can end up in a really tough spot. No, that's right. And a lot of times it's not even a technical founder, right? It's somebody who's has brought on some technical help, but it's light and it's either outsourced, which is even worse. And you don't even own the thing. It's right. You've got developers changing. And so, yeah, it's hard. Look, the early stages, um, I enjoy the early stages, but it is also, it's very hard. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we made, we made a conscious decision, I want to say two and a half years in where we thought we were ready to go out and start selling it. And we brought on handful of clients I, I don't even remember call it a dozen and it was bumpy and it wasn't we weren't providing what we thought we could provide and we stopped we literally like we're not taking on any other clients we told our investors we told ourselves we're not doing it we're not going to take on more clients and i think we spent like nine months or a year more on product and then we went back out again and when we hired our first actual salesperson it wasn't until March of 18 and we started in January of 15. We didn't spend a penny on marketing or hire a salesperson for three and a half years. I know it sounds like forever, particularly in the, 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 uh, <laughs> no, no, I, no, I appreciate it. Cause I, I think, you know, it, you hear the same stories of the same companies to your point, right? You hear the Instagram went out there and you know, they were a four square copycat put on photo filters and then ended up blowing up. And you just hear the same stories over and over again. Slack was a gaming company that then- That's the one, I, Slack was the one I was trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earlier, right? Yeah, they were a gaming company and then they had this internal tool and they you know, ended up getting, right. getting, getting, uh, getting it right just off the back of that, right? But that yeah. wasn't the intent. So I think it's good because every story is different, but we always hear the now, same Now, the interesting thing about again. both of those examples is that they had a lot of capital, right? And so I have not been uh, privileged enough to be in an early stage company that raises tens of millions of dollars of capital early, right? Like if you have, if you have super deep pockets like that, then yes, that gives you more room to pivot the whole product because you can have dozens of engineers reassigned. But in my world and the, the people I've been around who are starting companies and have a few million dollars in their early raises, right? They, they, you just don't have the money to build a product twice or to completely change what you're doing. Um, you have to be much, much more careful. Yeah, that makes sense. Any, any advice on how to get a, Oh, go ahead, Bo. No, that's fine. What, what were you saying? Oh yeah, I was going to say any any advice then for people that have raised just a little bit, like you said, that are you know that have to get it right. Like, what are some of the things that you can do to make sure that you're building the right product? Because if you are going to spend three years or two and a half, three years building something, you obviously want to make sure that it has a payoff at the end in terms of 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think I think it's um, this is going to be standard advice. I'm not going to say anything earth shattering here, but it's it's be very close to your customer. Like in my case, I was the customer, so that's as close as humanly possible. But you know, if you if you don't know the industry because you haven't worked in it and spent your own time in it, then you need to be like ridiculously close to it. I mean, like ridiculously close, like in it. You know, I think um, what was it? Uh, Elon Musk has a has a quote. I don't remember exactly, but something about how companies get it wrong by spending so much time in the boardroom and in spreadsheets and they need to go out and be like on the factory floor and talking to customers, like insanely involved in the customer experience. And if your product reflects doing that, then you're going to get it right. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Being as close to the customer as possible. You actually see how people use it versus yeah, the numbers, right? Because you can, they're important, but they don't tell you the experience. No. And it also, also being close to it, then forms the branding and forms the communication strategy and the sales strategy and helps you inform how you do things. I mean, literally like today I was in a meeting, we were talking about some sales stuff that I haven't directly done sales now in four years, but like doing it for three years and being an operator myself, I can speak completely fluently to a lot of these things that, that, that really is important. It continues to inform the strategy forever. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Bo makes a lot of sense. Now I'm curious being in the restaurant business, uh, we had, uh, some things change, right, with uh, the pandemic. How was that experience like uh, for for Margin Edge and obviously you know, providing software, probably meant retooling and helping helping restaurants do things they hadn't done before. But I'm curious what that experience was like for you and how you're able to manage through that, and still are probably managing through that. Yeah, well, things are definitely. I mean, it's still a little chaotic, but nothing like that. That was insanity. So. Um, it was an interesting seat to be in. So basically part of what our software does is we tie into point of sale systems. And so every night we actually pull everything our customers have sold, right? So every day we see everything sold. At the time of the of COVID hitting, we had restaurants doing about a billion, I wanna say a billion to something like that in sales annually, all small businesses, right? One to 25 yeah. restaurants. Uh, in 14 days, we saw that drop uh, 80%. It went down to $200 million. So small businesses lost 80% of their top line in 14 days. And we were all reading about it in the Wall Street Journal and, and seeing it. But to see those numbers like live as they were coming in was just staggering. And, you know, we're, we at that time, had, we had closed our Series A, but we're still super early stage, still spending money, obviously burning money. And, and so we went through a really interesting experience where we decided a couple of things that, that ended up being really important. One was um, out of force, frankly, that we were going to just discount and stop charging customers who were basically either closed or mostly closed. And so we saw our revenue go from growing 100% year over year to shrinking 40% in two months, which was uh, very hard for us to to deal with and or to think about. And at the same time, right, we had to think about our own our own capital structure. And we thought um, we basically did what the standard playbook is, which is we came up with a model of how much cash we needed to save, came up with forty percent in cash flow, and drew up a spreadsheet with the leadership team who we were going to have to let go. And, and so we put the whole sheet together. And honestly, right before we pulled the trigger, we were talking. We're like, it just doesn't feel like the right thing to do. And so we ended up deciding that instead of doing that, we were going to do pay cuts across the board. Everyone in the company, software developers, customer support, sales, doesn't matter. Everyone's taking a haircut. And we don't know for how long, but we're going to do this instead of layoffs. And it was a hard decision because you can imagine like software developers, for example, like 
whatever. They're just software developers, right? They may not care that the pain that the company and the industry is going through. The people on our support and sales team that came from the restaurant industry felt it more directly. But, yeah. but anyway, we did it and we were worried that retention would be terrible, but um, we did it and everyone stayed with us. People didn't quit. And That's uh, awesome. we had to do it for like four or five months. And when we reinstated the full pay, we said that we would do a bonus. Basically, when we started growing in our, our, our old rates, we'd, we'd do a bonus to pay people back. So a couple of interesting things happened. One is people didn't quit. Two is all of our scores, whether it's retention or um, like we do pulse surveys and stuff, all of our scores shot up. Like people were happier in the company, said nicer things about the company, liked the company better because the pain was being shared and everyone knew what was going on in the industry. And rather than us giving them some bullshit about we weren't affected or doing a bunch of layoffs and firing a bunch of people, everyone sharing in the pain, really, it, it brought people together. Um, and at the end of the year, we actually got the, um, the Best Places to Work Award for the first time in our entire company history, the year that we cut everybody's pay and the year of COVID. The decision on the customers ended up reflecting really well. We leaned into a bunch of things to try and help customers outside of our normal playbook. And, uh, and for the year, we ended up, so we, we lost 40% of our revenue in two months, but by September, we were back to our February number and we ended the year growing 30%. So we actually <laughs> grew a restaurant tech business in 2020. Um, our retention was higher. And yeah, we ended up getting back to our growth and giving bonuses. And it was, it was really, the whole thing was amazing. And we made a couple of hard decisions that didn't necessarily look like the normal playbook, but played out beautifully. And frankly, when restaurants started to come back, our growth rate grew faster. We ended up getting up to 130% year-on-year growth. Um, and I think part of that was attributable to the fact that we, we had our team in place. A lot of other companies had cut. Um, you know, like Toast, which is a big point of sale system, yeah. they fired 1,200 of 3,000 people two weeks after COVID. 1,200 people. Wow. Like, anyway. So yeah, made some hard hard choices, but um, it, it worked out. No, that makes sense, Bo. And you you kind of make it sound easy. I know that I know you're saying they're hard sources, but obviously the outcomes. That looking back, like, <gasps> yeah, of course, duh, that was the right decision. Yeah. But like. <laughs> what do you think you attributed to that? Because like, there's a communication piece of getting it right. There's also the fact that it sounds like because you're in the restaurant business and you're, a lot of your team is understanding the pain point. So you, it wasn't just like the employee side. It sounds like you also took a really direct approach with yeah. customers as well. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we've done a good job as a company and as an organization to always um, do the things that we believe, not just say them. And so we've always been extremely transparent. Like we share virtually all of our information with everybody inside of the organization and even externally with clients we're, we're very very transparent and so when you when the shit hits the fan and you have a history of being very transparent and you stay transparent you get a lot more empathy from people than you might otherwise i think we also on the flip side we're exceedingly empathetic with the restaurants because in our on our team probably 70 percent of our team comes from the restaurant industry including myself and my co-founder and and so you know we've we felt it. We own restaurants and we watched it happen. We closed our doors. We had to send hourly people home that we couldn't afford to pay. Right. Like it's a, it's emotionally it was brutal. So when you go through that personally and then margin edge is, is servicing clients, like, I mean, you'd have to be, you'd have to have a heart of stone to not like be like, well, what can I do with margin edge to help people? So like when the PPP madness happened, we don't have anything to do with the PPP, but we went out and we found a bank that wanted to do a bunch of PPP loans and we took no profits from it, but we went to all of our clients and we said, hey, if your bank won't do a PPP quick, we've got a channel for you and we help people get PPP loans all gratis. Um, 
and you know stuff like that because again we felt it like my yeah. bank for my restaurant was too small and said i can try to get your pvp but we might be at the back of the line right and i was like oh shit uh other people are probably <laughs> feeling something similar and, and so we tried to help everybody yeah no i i love that and Bo, do you have like do you have like a, a strong like mission vision values because it sounds like i mean you mentioned transparency being a key part of that but something that it seems like you guys can look back to and the company can reference and that's part of the core of of uh why you're able to keep the team together throughout yeah, this no, tough time 100 so our our core mission is um I, I say it the informal way which is i like to say we help restaurateurs um we service restaurateurs the way they like to service their clients so to the extent that you know restaurateurs are all about hospitality they're about the experience that the, the guest has when they come in it's not just about food not just about ambience not just about service it's all of it right and i like to think of that that's what we try to do for our clients we're not just a software company it's not just the customer support it's holistic we try to make them feel good about the experience of working with margin edge um and so that's that's really at our core and from that yes we have five uh, principles and, and it's like you know um, transparency have fun we listen we win together is a big one and uh, one of my favorites is go big or go home. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, and we and we 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 reference back to those things, and they're important. But I will say, like everyone has those. Like people write them and they put them on the wall. And so it's not. I'm not so proud of the fact that we have all that stuff documented. What I'm proud of is that you know we just do it. Like it's just what we do. It's not something we have to focus on and talk about. It's just we literally. Those are those are just how we live normally. So. Yeah, no, I love that. And yeah, you're right. Every company has them, but that doesn't mean that everyone knows them or that the company actually, you know, them and, and abides by them. So, yeah. but what would you say when you, when you think about success for margin edge, like, what does that look like? Like, how would you define success? So I think there's a micro and a macro. So in the micro, it's that restaurant owner, operator, kitchen manager, uh, accountant, people working in the restaurant back office, helping their lives be a little bit easier so that they can be have a higher probability of success in what is a difficult business, right? Um, and so having a positive impact on them is is our primary sort of north north star. On the macro, I mean, it, you know, we're we are um, growing rapidly and hope to to be able to do that a lot. So we're currently in three thousand restaurants, but it's a giant market. Um, you know, I'd love to see us being able to do that individually just as well as we do now but for a hundred thousand restaurants right like there's no reason we can't uh continue to grow for for a long time well Bo, this has been a, a lot of fun i really appreciate you sitting down um, thanks so much is, for the invite yeah is there anything in particular i want to leave you the last words so if there's anything that i missed or anything you want to leave with the audience um definitely share that and then also please let everyone know how they can connect with you outside of the podcast yeah, uh, as far as connecting marginedge.com, please come check us out and uh, connect with us. And then, you know, the, the thought I guess I would leave entrepreneurs generally. And so my mom is actually a professor of entrepreneurship at a university. Ooh. And so I've been to speak to her class a few times. And one of the things I say is like, I don't think entrepreneurship is for everybody. Like a lot of people are like, follow your dreams, start a company. Like it's <laughs> hard and it's hard in a different way than a lot of other roles. And so people should be thoughtful before they go down that road. But if you do go down it and you do decide you want to be an entrepreneur, my number one piece of advice is, is really that authenticity, like, like 
just just be real like be real with potential investors be real with with teammates be real with clients be real and being real means saying hey i'm not gonna be able to do this thing hey this is gonna take a while hey it's gonna have some bugs people appreciate that they connect with you with that and then when that shit happens it's not really a problem and frankly, if someone thinks you're going to be perfect and you need to, to not have any of those things happen, that's not who you should be working with anyway. So as much as possible, just just be real, be sincere and um, and transparent. And, and uh, yeah, well, there it is. Transparency right there. At the, again, so. you see a lot of people who are full of shit. Right. So it's not it's not <laughs> as obvious as you might think that, that really transparency goes a long way. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Bo. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sitting down. Yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invite again. On your way out, please share the podcast with others. It's the only way that the community grows and others hear these incredible stories from entrepreneurs and top performers. And of course, pound that subscribe button so you get notified when episodes drop every Friday. I'm William Glass, CEO and co-founder of Ostrich, and of course, your host of the Silicon Alley Podcast. Have a very profitable day. You got no time to waste, but still you hesitate. Caught in a circle saying, I'll never leave this place. Ooh. Some words got you searching from the bright side over and over again.